Hey everyone, it's Tom Hoare. Thanks for joining us for another episode of our BNY Mellon Perspectives podcast series. We've got a really informative discussion for you today, and it's a topic that has widespread market implications. It focuses on the end of LIBOR. Now, what exactly is LIBOR? For those who don't know, a wide range of financial products such as derivatives, bonds, loans, structured products, and mortgages use benchmark rates to determine interest rates and payment obligations. Benchmark rates are also used to value certain financial products and as a performance tracker for funds, among a number of other purposes. The London Interbank Offered Rate, or LIBOR, is probably the most widely used benchmark and it's used in financial products across a number of global currencies, including the US dollar. To give you an idea of how important LIBOR is at present, over $400 trillion worth of financial arrangements are underpinned by LIBOR around the world. $400 trillion. Going as far back as 2014, financial regulatory authorities expressed a bit of concern that the interbank lending market, which LIBOR is intended to reflect, was no longer sufficiently active or liquid. So fast forward to March 5th of this year, the market was finally provided some clarity as to LIBOR's projected end date, which is when LIBOR settings will either cease or no longer be representative. So as a global bank that's really at the center of so much in terms of our global capital markets, we wanted to provide a little bit of context on this topic and a little bit of education too. So we brought together BNY Mellon's Executive LIBOR Program Director, Oliver Bader, with Tom Whipf, the Chair of the Alternative Reference Rate Committee, or ARC. ARC is the body responsible for engaging in cross-industry consultations and proposing the US dollar LIBOR replacement. Oliver and Tom sat down to reflect on the confirmed LIBOR deadlines and implications for the global markets and key focus area for firms as they transition to alternative reference rates, as well as whether the market can expect a US dollar LIBOR replacement this year. Tom provides us with a unique vantage point around the conditions for a term rate and when the market can anticipate there being one. He also reflects on what ARC's priorities are likely to be in 2022 and 2023, when the majority of LIBOR settings cease to be published and their significant implications for market participants as they prepare for LIBOR's endgame. So it's an educational discussion it's a really detailed discussion, and it covers a topic that has massive implications for the global economy. I hope you enjoy it. As always, share your feedback, listen, rate, review. Tell us what you think wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you at the next episode, and I hope you enjoy this conversation between Tom Whipf and Oliver Bader from BNY Mellon. Thanks again. first four months of 2021 have witnessed the release of several highly significant LIBOR announcements, including definite LIBOR end dates. We're here today with Tom Whip, the ARC chair, to reflect on what these announcements are likely to mean for most firms as they reconfigure their plans to cease using LIBOR. So Tom, welcome to our podcast. It's great to have you. Great to be here. Thank you for joining us today. A lot of people know that you have a long-established and successful career in banking, but they may not necessarily be aware that you're also a successful musician and veteran guitar player. Now, I assume that LIBOR probably isn't one of the main topics you normally discuss during gig rehearsals, but if the topic would arise, how would you explain the topic as well as your role at the ARC to somebody who is not dealing with the matter on a daily basis? Oliver, thank you for that. I think when we really look at this and, and, the, and the enormity of this and the complexity of this work, you know, we've been at this, you know, since 2014 uh, and the goal of, you know, replacing a rate that's used in, in so many different contracts uh, and over 225 trillion 
uh, dollars and contracts rest on. LIBOR, I think the best example is it's a very, very complicated piece of music, and it involves a lot of collaboration, a lot of coordination, and musicians, I'd say if it was uh, the, the analog is musicians, it would be people who need to listen and play uh, and also be able to collaborate well to create a good outcome at the end. So like any band, it's a lot of moving parts. It's a lot of complications. But in the end, if we get it right, it's going to sound perfect. Thanks, Tom, for giving our listeners a, a solid bird's eye view on what this transition is all about and also kind of comparing that to a piece of music. Now, zooming in now to the major building blocks, I think it's fair to say that we have seen several significant market updates since last November. Can you provide us with a summary of the key developments and their implications for the market? And do you think the delay of the cessation date for US dollar LIBOR, for instance, offer a breathing space for firms' implementation timelines? Yes, thanks, Ed. Oliver. So what we've got here really, it does give us breathing space to roll down legacy trades. It does not give us breathing space to create new LIBOR. So the announcements that we got at the end of last year as it related to dollar LIBOR, which like all the other IBORs was scheduled to sunset at the end of this year, there were a series of announcements. Now the other IBORs will sunset at the end of this year and those plans are moving along quite well. For dollar LIBOR, I think due to the size and scope and progress that needed to happen, there was a compromise made between an extension on the back of 18 months to June of 2023, but that came with very direct supervisory guidance from US prudential banking regulators, the Fed, OCC, FDIC, and that interagency point, which said no new LIBOR at the end of this year. So what we've got is we stopped the production. So we've now formalized what I've been saying for years, which is like we have to stop digging the hole. So we formalized that with supervisory guidance of no new LIBOR, and we have 18 months now to roll down some of these existing legacy contracts. Those contracts, if you think about it just in big numbers, there's 225 trillion in outstanding LIBOR reference contracts today. Using this additional runway, 67% of that will roll down before June of 2023. That reduces the, the all the operational risk and everything else that comes with the final transition significantly. So that's the critical piece of this. We describe this as a roll down corridor where we have an opportunity to stop new production with supervisory guidance, use this additional 18 months to maximize the organic roll down and the maturities that we'll see and arrive at a much safer place, not that much later than we had planned. Like you just said, Tom, yeah, we have the art guidance kind of for best practices a year ago with the supplement also of the inter interagency statement, November of 2020. Uh, kind of to stop using US dollar LIBOR at the end of 2021. How would you describe the readiness of the market by product segment if we take floating rate notes, loans, derivatives, and securitizations, kind of to stop using LIBOR for those new transactions? So we've really, I think we've tried to lay out a path, which is between the ARC best practices going by product, which offer dates where a market participant, if they follow those best practices, should have the smoothest transition and the hard supervisory stop at the end of this year. So what we do is we try to balance that. So we've really looked product by product. Certainly the floating rate note market is adapted to SOFR and there's a lot of activity there um, using a number of conventions. Uh, the derivatives market continues to rely on LIBOR, but everyone has signed the protocol so the fallbacks actually convert to SOFR. It's an important point about liquidity. I mentioned the 225 trillion, I've mentioned the 67% rolling down. But remember, every legacy contract that goes beyond 2023 
will convert to SOFR at the end at the end of that at the end of 20, at June of 2023. So what we have is this huge pool of SOFR liquidity out there on the curve. And all we're trying to do is now move to get people to start using SOFR more actively, particularly in a derivatives market, which will link into some other things I think we're going to discuss. But overall, product by product by product, the answer is our best practices are the best path to follow. But nonetheless, we got a hard stop on all products at the end of 2021 for new production. Yeah. Looking still at 2021, and Kevin, in respect of that SOFR readiness milestone, are there any outstanding tasks that the ARC is still working on for this year? Yeah, the ARC has been really, uh, I think, trying to be very, uh, very transparent about the desire for some to have a forward-looking term SOFR rate. So although many products can use overnight SOFR compounded in advance or in arrears, the Fed averages that are available, which are currently used in the consumer mortgage market, but there's still a, a, you know, a cohort of participants who definitely would like to have a forward-looking term SOFR. The ARC had promised to deliver that in June, but I think we always assumed that that was more state-dependent than date-dependent. So we needed the derivatives market to pick up a little bit more in terms of volume before we could endorse a forward-looking term SOFR. Because obviously when the ARC endorsement matters, because it's going to be used for all the fallbacks, and we want to make sure it's robust and we don't replicate any of the weaknesses that we've seen in LIBOR. So what we've done is two critical dates out there as it relates to term SOFR. The first is that the ARC has been communicating nearly every week on a path to term SOFR. We publish principles of what we would need to see. We publish market indicators on what needs to happen. And we will, over time, identify we will identify a producer of that rate. And then when the market indicators are met, we'll endorse that rate. So when we put that all together, we've got a path to term SOFR. What's the last piece of the puzzle? Getting the derivatives market to go directly to SOFR. Now, from an economic perspective, Oliver, it already is, right? Everybody that signed a fallback, if you do a 10-year swap today, you're doing you're doing two years of, of, of LIBOR and eight years of adjusted SOFR. So when we put it all together, what we really need to do is to have the quoting conventions and the derivatives market move. We've been doing a lot of work with the CFTC's Market Risk Advisory Committee, and we hope at some point by this summer we'll be able to we'll announce a date in this summer for when those conventions change. And this has been a path that was blazed in the UK. It worked very well. Once the inner dealer markets changed their conventions, once pricing conventions changed over there from Europe, from Sterling LIBOR to Sonia, the market shifted completely. So what we're telling people in the market as best they can is if you have a desire to have a term SOFR, encourage your derivatives desk to get on board and begin using SOFR as a first choice uh, in this. And this is this initiative, you'll hear a lot about it. It's called SOFR First, uh, completely copied from the UK's Sonia First. So stay tuned. That's going to be a big piece. If we can get the derivatives market to move on new production, we have a really good chance of delivering uh, forward-looking term SOFR in a, in a very short, shortly following that. You just mentioned the, the UK, Tom. Is there anything else kind of you mentioned already, kind of the, the Sonia first and SOFA first? Is there anything else you, you think we could learn also from kind of what we're seeing in the UK and on, on Sonia and term rates and, and Sonia? Yeah, I think there was a real collective. And obviously, look, there's a you know the very different regulatory framework in the United States than there is in the UK. Uh, just even benchmark regulation doesn't even exist in the UK. So we're working across many, many regulators, many market participants, and the diversity of participants in dollar LIBOR is, is, is much wider than some of the other currencies. Nonetheless, we look at all the other working groups and what's worked and what hasn't. So obviously, 
Switzerland might as well, they're done. They got the work done. They don't, there's no need for a so forward looking term rate. Everything is done in compounding. We followed what's happening in Canada, the progress there. We follow Europe, which will all look like they were behind, seem to be accelerating pretty rapidly. And, but the UK, to your point, lays out what the path is. We got to get the derivatives market moving first. That's critical. But they've done great work. Uh, so, what we've done in terms of legislation in the US uh, to, for tough legacy things like floating rate notes, perpetuals, trust preferred securitizations. We've got near state legislation enacted into law that substitutes marked fallbacks in there. In the UK, they're going down a route of a synthetic LIBOR, but that's really jurisdictional and based on the different prevailing laws. Nonetheless, every working group wants to address tough legacy through some form of legislation. Every working group wants to get to a risk-free reference rate first in the derivatives market as a critical path to moving forward. So yeah, we're tracking everything that works. And I'd have to say from the UK perspective, the Sonia First initiative was hands down one of the biggest things that moved that market. So we're hoping to track that and hope we can be even half as successful as they were. Okay, Tom, great. Uh, staying on rates for, for a little bit longer, kind of beside the desire of some market participants to have a term rate, there are also others out there who, are, who have voiced their wish for a credit sensitive rate. Mm -hmm. uh, as SOFR cannot deliver on both fronts, we're seeing currently the emergence of a number of new rates being offered by various market providers. How do you evaluate these developments? And do you believe that these rates could have a negative effect on the ability of SOFR to gain traction and momentum over the next couple of months? You know, I think the way we've looked at this, of, of course, there can be alternatives, right? But we, we would encourage everyone to carefully consider the reference rates that they use actively work to understand what they represent, how robust they are, whether they're sustainable or have been sustainable over time to ensure we don't want to do this again. So our one message is we want to do this right and we want to do it once. You know, and uh, UCLA, legendary UCLA basketball coach John Wooden said, if we don't have time to do it right, when will we have time to do it again? And so we really are focusing on let's get this right and do it once. We believe SOFR can cover all products. So from the ARCS perspective, we selected SOFR after a long consultation. We believe that with a trillion dollars in underlying activity, it forms the best foundation. Now, we did a careful evaluation of that and we chose that. Nonetheless, the other thing we're asking people to do is know what's in your reference rate. So you need to look at every one of these alternatives very closely. One, what data do they rely on? Is that data gonna be dependable over time? How big is the data set? How is the calculation methodology? And most importantly, just stress test them to March of 2020. And if they suit your business, that's fine. But I think when we people really look closely at these things, we still would stand by the fact that SOFR is the best alternative. And as I mentioned, that pool of liquidity sitting out there, 75 trillion plus waiting for the end of June of 2023, means that SOFR will have the dominant liquidity position. And in my opinion, liquidity tracks liquidity. And that's why LIBOR was so popular. So I know our kind of our focus is still on 2021, but now let's move on to kind of into 2022 mentally. And if we put ourselves into a liable project lead, faced a, a scenario in which only limited transition activity was likely to occur in the first nine months of 2022, what recommendations would you give them regarding project governance and driving the project? Well, that is an outstanding question, I think, and that really speaks to the key part of this is that 
we are now in the process of mitigating market risk. Is the protocols, CCP conventions on terms of converting trades, everything we're doing, using ARC fallback language, using SOFR as a first choice, all those things are really market risk related. So we're trying to reduce market risk now. And that's really what the what the race is going to be between now and no new LIBOR at the end of 2021. But let's look at these programs broadly. The real work for these programs largely is going to be ops and technology and repapering and actually using these fallbacks. So we talk about fallbacks like the is the protocol and arc fallbacks as like they're like seatbelts, right? You, you want to have them, but you don't want to use them. So the goal would be you can't let these programs even, uh, you know, uh, atrophy even slightly, because at the end of this, when we think about getting to the end of LIBOR in these programs, the point we get is that everything that we're doing now to eliminate market risk is creating some form of future operational risk. So we do we sign a fallback. Well, we have to go through that fallback. We have to repaper loans. We have amended uh, fallback language and a lot of loans. We have to go back and conduct those amendments. We have all the things that we have to work through a waterfall and create playbooks and do that. So really, when you think about it, at the end of 2021, we should be, if we remain on schedule, be in a place where we've mitigated an enormous amount of market risk, but we now are facing the real work, the repapering, the, the operational aspects, working through these things, connecting with clients, doing everything that we're supposed to do at the end. And that's going to be a lot of work. And I think so making sure that people carry these programs forward, but shift their focus from market risk to operational risk and completion of the of the, of the transition. Yeah. And Tom kind of shining the light on maybe one aspect of, of really that transition, that second part, kind of if we think about over the last few decades, the process of disseminating data for bond and securitization issuers to market data providers uh, has been established via new issuances or corporate actions. But as some of the solutions for tough legacy may not require those channels, like, for example, the, 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 the legislation, has the ARC considered ways in which changes and fallbacks will be communicated throughout the market? Yes, and I think, I think we've always tried to say, well, look, even though we've got the legislation, we also have to get, you know, sort of, you know, how these terms are going to be are going to be applied. Right. So the arc in the New York state legislation and most likely, hopefully in the federal legislation, but that, you know, wherever it is, but the New York state legislation right now designates the arc and so forth. So we have to actually lay out uh, what those conventions are. So the arc is going to play a role in everything related to New York legislation, everything related to arc fallback. So the arc has selected a calculation agent uh, and the arc has done some work on this, but we will be designated and have that responsibility. So, yeah, as we approach those dates, the arc will be delivering very clear information to the market on how to actually apply these fallbacks um, as best we can. So let's fast forward on that point kind of to January 2022 and kind of the U.S. market has successfully stopped using U.S. dollar LIBOR. The other currencies, uh, the panel banks have stopped submitting their daily LIBOR rates. Euros uh, and, and Swiss LIBOR has ceased completely. Um, sterling and Japanese yen, we might see, you said it, might see synthetic versions. And until U.S. dollar LIBOR, we have another 18 months to go. So in that kind of context, what will be the priorities of the ARC be in 2022 and 2023? Have you already kind of a, a bullet point list of what those priorities will be? Yes, I do. And I think that our, our goals are going to be 
that same discussion where we have to shift aggressively from market risk mitigation to operational risk mitigation. What are the things that we can do? How do we maximize that extra 18 months or that additional time to deliver on a smooth transition? So in that period, we're going to be encouraging people to deal with their amended fallback language in loans, address their tough legacy, understand how they're going to transition it. But the work really, you know, it can begin now, but it certainly needs to begin as we as we enter 2022, as market participants think about, okay, what is all this stuff I signed up for and what do I have to do when I get there? So I think inventorying those things, you know, seeing what can be done in advance, negotiating things up to the front, because really I think we all want to get to a point where we don't want to be in a position of, of dealing with a whole bunch of fallbacks and working through all that, if we can, in fact, work with customers to voluntarily convert, to have different things. But we really think that is an opportunity at the end of this year for people to think about controlling their own destiny by voluntary conversions, by in bilateral negotiations, but clean up that last pile between now and then. And all of a sudden, we won't have that much left to deal with. When I say not much left, we're dealing in trillions. So a lot, but not much on a relative basis from where we stand today. Tom, thanks for your thoughts on that and doing this podcast with me. And let's hope that this will be a very kind of successful music piece at the end where we will all kind of also in retrospect want to listen to. Thank you very much again. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak to this very, very important set of constituents. So thank you for your time. Hey, everyone. Tom here again. Thanks again for joining. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. As I said at the top, uh, keep listening on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Most importantly, if you're willing, leave a review or a rating and tell us your feedback. You can find us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and bnymelon.com. Thanks again for joining. We'll see you on the next episode.